What's really over the rainbow? Are drag queens capable of mind control? How many times has Beyonce been cloned? Can I get an amen? For too long, the heteronormative straight stream media has been hiding the truth, the sheer queer truth. But now she's coming out, and she wants the world to know. It's time to unveil the shocking answers to all of your burning questions. The truth is here, the truth is queer, so get used to it. We are Mr. Sister. And this is Queer Anon. Welcome to another episode of Queer Anon with Mr. Sister. I am your host, Jordan Barbour. My pronouns are Sarah, Jessica, and Parker. Hello, my name is Caitlin Shore, and my pronouns are Sally, Jesse, Raphael. Well, we're going to start this show the way we start every show, with a check-in. Caitlin, how was your week? My week was weirdly good. I would say for me personally, nothing much happened. There were some national happenings, namely, we got a new president. And a black vice president. And a girl vice president. Um, um, and an Asian vice president. Come on. All those things are yeah, true. All those things. All those things. All those things. So so that's happening. My personal life, I basically did some cleaning. And that's a big old for who. I don't know. <laughs> Know. You know when you clean, even if you don't have any company, you kind of imagine like, well, when the company comes, mm-hmm. this this corner's going to look real nice. <laughs> but now that fantasy is like extra fantasy. Yeah. The only com- I am the company when I come in yeah. from a different room and yeah. I think about my past self and I'm like, mm, she doesn't have great taste. So that was the only, you know, real different thing that I did this week. And yeah. but overall, we're in a good place. I'll take it. Check in. How about you? Great, great. Uh, it was a pretty solid week for me. You know, I, I am thinking that the new year actually started yesterday, January 20th, mm. because Biden and Kamala, it just feels like there's a new energy in the air and all that shit from the first. 20 days of this month, I'm just going to leave in the pocket of 2020. Because I don't know if I said this last week, but just a reminder that because there was no year zero or whatever it is, you know, this is actually the beginning of the next decade. 2021 is actually the first year in the next decade. I love that. I think. I don't know. I don't know if that's actually true, but it's how I'm going to think about it so that I get through this shit. So I'm considering everything before January 20th as the end of 2020. Uh, and this is the beginning of 2021 and it just feels good. I feel like uh, yesterday there's just, there's just a weight that lifts that's off my shoulder. It just, you know, and when I was watching the inauguration yesterday, I just had this feeling of like, uh, it feels like the adults are back in the room. You know yeah. what I mean? It feels like the adults yeah. are back in charge. And we don't have to love the adults. In fact, often the adults are annoying and they make rules, but right. you need them. Yes. And we can disagree with them and you can think their rules are stupid, but you also like, the the thing that's underneath it is that you respect them, right? And that there is at least some level of respect for who they are and the work they've done, their careers. And it just feels so fucking good to know that Donald Trump is probably still trying to get people to pay attention to him, but like mm-hmm. we just don't need to anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it it just feels so fucking good. Other than that, it's been a pretty uneventful week. My parents are doing really well. Ooh. Uh, they've both recovered very well. You know, my dad's got a long recovery ahead of him. Both my parents had COVID, for anyone who didn't know that. But they're both doing well, and I just feel good. I feel good for the first time in a while. 
I'm finally working again. I've been doing these Shakespeare podcasts. It just feels good to be collaborating with other artists again. So I had a good week. So check in. And now we're going to start the show with a recap. Now, I know last week we did a full rundown. In our pop culture moment, we talked about the first two episodes of RuPaul's Drag Race. We are not a RuPaul's Drag Race recap show, though we originally were. That was kind of one of our original ideas. But in honor of Mama Ru and the queens and the show, we are going to do a weekly recap. And here with the recap is Dr. Caitlin Shore. Hey, hey, hey. That's like the the least gay <laughs> hey that I could do. Hey, 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 everybody. We're going to be talking about Mr. RuPaul. <laughs> um, okay, so, so this week on RuPaul's Drag Race, we had episode three, or as I like to call it, episode one, part C. <laughs> Uh, because this has all been one long intro show. No one has gone home yet. Spoiler. So what happened this week was effectively a round two of what happened last week in, in terms of structure. But instead of it being the quote unquote top queens, so-called because they won their first lip syncs. Um, oh, it's not because they won. No, like it's not. Oh, okay. There aren't any of. Sure. Yeah. No, I, gotcha. Gotcha. So it was the it was the quote unquote bottom queens, so called, mm. because they uh, lost their first lip sync, and oh, it's not because no, it, they, but they also no, no, okay, okay. So yeah. all of the gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. Go on. <clears throat> so the bottom queens come in, they de drag, they discuss who is trade or not trade. Opinion is there's a good deal of trade. And then they get into their first mini challenge, which, like the previous week, is a two-look runway theme of Lady and the Vamp, which is just Rue doing some wordplay to say day-night looks. And I'm not (laughs) mad. I'm not mad. It's the same challenge as the week prior. It's the same exact challenge. I mean, I'm certainly not mad at it. So they do their looks, lots of great looks, lots of really great commentary from... The audience, meaning Rue and Michelle, following the mini challenge, we move on to the maxi challenge. Again, like the previous week, the gals are going to be writing a song for Rue because Rue needs writers. (laughs) Uh, And so the gals are going to write lyrics. They're going to do some choreo. They're going to perform. RuPaul's going to make some money. And that's mm-hmm. a, that's pretty much the formula for this empire. <laughs> so this is free labor. Free labor. So there's kind of some of the usual struggles with I am not a lyric writer, and then other girls being like I am, and then there's too many queens thinking that they're the choreographers, but it all comes together. They all lip sync to RuPaul's phenomenon. Then there's some feedback, largely positive, from the judges to the queens. And then, shocker, no one's going home, but we're still going to have the top queens lip sync. So that was, and I'll just say the names here, even though I haven't earlier. The lip syncing queens were Denali and Rosé. Denali takes the day. And... That was the episode, and we are left to hope and presume next week all the queens will be combined. Well, now we know they have. Mm. If you've been paying attention to Instagram, they're mm. going to be combined. Presumably, someone will finally go home. Yeah. The, and though 
I think this whole thing was a good idea with Rue opening it up and saying we're not going to send someone home right away and we're going to really get to know people. For some reason, I think it's going to hurt even more now to be the first one going home because we know who they are. Fair, fair, fair. And like the thing with every season is you never want to be the first queen going home, right? But you're absolutely right in that now it's like week four and there's still no queen that will have been sent home. So you like really don't want to be the first queen that's gone home now because it's like oh i really showed you what i had yeah really don't think yeah you can't that whole argument of like oh rue hasn't even seen me like she's only seen one look she doesn't know how much like how well i can lip sync none of we've seen you we haven't seen everything well we've seen you what do you think of the season so far i am adjusting um <laughs> just became a robot i am adjusting to the format i don't mind you know like we discussed last year everything else has been different over the past 12 months so why wouldn't this be as well i do feel like there's a there's a strange sense of warmth i don't know if you know you can manufacture anything in an edit but off the bat, it feels much more kindness, sisterhood, family than I would normally have at this point. Yeah. I mean, consider the way Rue and Michelle are behaving with each other right now. Mm-hmm. You know, even just mm-hmm. on the runway, their energy just feels different and more open. And their energy feels like. We're 12 years old. We're still doing sleepovers, but we're curious about alcohol. And mom left a glass of wine out. So we have that sleepover 2 a.m. energy plus a touch at something. And we're just laughing our butts off. Yeah, they're so giddy. And I'm wondering if what it actually is, is just, you know, I feel like if if nothing else we learned from 2020, it's that life is bullshit and let's just try and enjoy what we've got. Mm -hmm. And so uh, all the seriousness or any seriousness that one might bring to a show like RuPaul's Drag Race, not to downplay it, not to say that it shouldn't be taken seriously, but at the end of the day, it's drag. It's supposed to be fun. It's kind of Mm -hmm. supposed to be poking a finger at society and making fun of society a little bit. And I feel like, not that they haven't had this before, they've kind of always had this, but I feel like the judges, especially Rue and Michelle, are just so enjoying being mm-hmm, with each other mm-hmm. and being around each other. And I think genuinely enjoying these queens. And that's a lot of why the first two weeks, mm. all of the critiques have been positive, right? They're, they haven't really eviscerated anyone. They, th- this week, they finally gave some negative critiques. But even those were soft yeah. at best, you know? they've They've been really kind to the queens, which I get. And I think... In these times, we need that. That being said, those of us who just love RuPaul's Drag Race want to see some of these bitches get eviscerated, you know? It's not that you just want to see them get eviscerated. It's for them and us. The feedback process is very important to know Mm -hmm. how well are they – like, so – you and I have been watching enough that I think our critiques are pretty informed and pretty solid. I don't have the – sartorial knowledge that Michelle has. I don't have all of the cultural references that Rue has. And so they sometimes see things, particularly in garments, that I'm like, oh, I didn't get that reference or I didn't understand why that was so stupid or whatever. So, uh, you know, I'd appreciate some more feedback, even if that means negative. You often see this in, in reality shows when people are just safe, 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 particularly on RuPaul's Drag Race. They get mad because they don't get 
the critiques. They don't get any for critiques, yeah. The two winners were Denali and Rose. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't have the same feelings towards them, but they seem like solid trained queens who hit their marks, who know how to do all the things. But I'm not falling in love with either of them. I would be very happy to see them out on the scene, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't go to their one woman show. I don't mm-hmm. think. My mind could mm-hmm. be changed. Again, the the main thing that we haven't seen yet is comedy. And Fair. you know how big of a game changer that is. But right Absolutely. now, I think they're both solid people, but I'm not gagging. I mean, I love Tamisha Iman, and I'm glad that she got to show us more of herself and more of who she was. There was also a vital bit of information that we learned this week, which is that Miss Tamisha Iman is the drag mother of one Tandy Iman Dupree. Girl, when I found that out, it made me love Tamisha Iman even more because for anyone who does not know who Tandy Iman Dupree is, she is a legend. And it's only because of one video that's been on YouTube basically for the past 13 years or however long it's been. In which she lip syncs to I Need a Hero. Caitlin, why don't you describe what this video shows us? You see a buff man on the stage. He's searching for his hero, I think. He's looking left and right. Nobody's there. He's about to leave the stage. And then literally from the sky, a queen drops to the floor into a split, like lands on the crotch area. From the ceiling, <laughs> y'all. Incredible. And Incredible. and then, it, you know, the fun doesn't stop. It goes on and on. There's so many more tricks to happen, including mm-hmm. being thrown on the floor yet again by the man into well, a she's, split. She's sitting on his shoulders. They do some dance where they go back and forth. And then he lifts her and throws her across the stage. And then she lands into a split and continues lip syncing. I mean, it's, the, it's one of the most incredible lip syncs you will ever see. And... She's just at a 10 the whole time and she's just giving herself. And it's one of those times where I know personally for me, I'm always, or at least originally when I was watching drag, I was kind of like, they're lip syncing. Where What is the talent involved in this? You watch that video and you're like, okay, that's the talent involved. Yeah. Because in she is incredible. So if you haven't seen that, Google it. Tandy Amon Dupree. It'll come right up. That was Tamisha's daughter. Unfortunately, this legend is no longer with us. But I do think, you know, we we got to see Tamisha in this mother light in in more than one way. I mean, literally we found out the bitch has three biological children. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Which like I hope there's I sort of hope there's no more explanation as much as I hope there is an explanation. Right. It was uh it was a very interesting episode just cuz we got to get to know their personalities more. And I'm still just not fully sold on Rosé yet. I don't know why, but I it's, just, I'm not sold on her. I don't, and I want to be. I, you can tell she's talented. You can tell she has been doing this for a while and wants, but I, I don't know why. There's something about her aesthetic that I just don't love. or, or I don't know. I agree. I, know I feel it, it too. You know, last week we were talking about Tina Burner and how yeah. she's been in the game for a long time and she feels like a queen who came ready to play. And I would say the same thing about Rosé, too. Mm-hmm. The difference is, I feel like Rosé might be trying too hard. Yeah. Whereas Tina Burner, it's just natural a little bit. And I feel mm-hmm. like Rosé is constantly trying to be like, well, I'm a New York drag queen and I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. And 
this is, you know, and it's just one of those things where it's like, I don't know who any of you are, but I'm way more impressed by Simone already. And I'm way more impressed by so many other queens. And, you know, they won for a reason. Denali and, and she won for a reason. I don't know that I fully agree with it. I personally would have probably given one of those slots to Tamisha Iman, if only for, for that, that dress, dress that she wore. Good God. That dress that she made herself. It was so gorgeous. It was incredible. It was incredible. This batch of queens is interesting, but I'm not super overwhelmed by them yet but we'll see in the weeks to come so that was the recap so for this week's pop culture moment we are going to be looking at the netflix series bridgerton which is under the umbrella of the shondaland network she has made a deal with netflix to produce i believe seven or eight series and bridgerton which premiered on Christmas Day of 2020, is the first of those series to debut on Netflix. It was one of the biggest debuts in Netflix's history. Apparently, like 63 million people tuned in within the first two weeks, making it the fourth highest viewed Netflix debut in their history. It follows the Bridgerton family. Notably in this first season, we're following Daphne Bridgerton, who is the eldest daughter of the Bridgerton family. Now, In this world, we are essentially following the aristocracy of England circa 1813. The whole season is essentially about the courtship of the debutantes and the suitors for this season. We follow Daphne Bridgerton and the other ladies of the town who are seeking suitors in order to not end up spinsters, which is a fate worse than death in this era of England. Would 1813 be Victorian England? Also look this up. This is technically called the Regency era. I don't know what that means. Because Victorian would be Queen Victoria. Right. And that wasn't Queen Victoria. Right. I don't know who was reigning then. I don't really care either. That's the other thing. I literally was self-conscious about these types of things. And (laughs) I mean, maybe this, congratulations. I thought you would be better informed than me. But it turns out we're both stupid about this shit. I'm not. So basically, in this first season, we're following these women and men competing for the marriage market. They're looking for good matches. They're hoping that the queen will bestow this title of the incomparable on them, which makes them highly desirable. Basically, it's about the aristocracy of London in 1813 and these young people who are trying to find mates. In this first season, like I said, we meet Daphne Bridgerton. We meet the whole Bridgerton clan. There are seven Bridgerton children and there's a Bridgerton matriarch. The patriarch of the family died. He and his wife, Lady Bridgerton, had what has been described as like a wonderful marriage. And it's kind of the template for which all of the matches that people are trying to make model themselves after. It's this idea that marriage doesn't just have to be about a dowry or doesn't have to just be about economic advancement. It can also be about love and it can also be about friendship. Over the course of these eight episodes, we get to know myriad characters. In addition to the Bridgerton family, we also meet the Featheringtons, who are essentially like the beta version of the Bridgertons. They're kind of what you don't want to be in this high society. They're kind of the lowest rung of this high society. And that's due in large part to the fact that the patriarch of that family has a lot of gambling debts and and shit like that. They bring a young woman named Marina who is brought over because of the patriarch's gambling debts. He's, she's brought over to London high society and is introduced to the debutante scene as well. And she is also looking for a suitor. She's got a little secret though. She's preggers. (laughs) In addition to that, we meet 
Simon, the Duke of Hastings, who is essentially the other protagonist of the series. Mm. He is also a suitor, but he's not looking for a wife for many reasons, which we'll get into. Daphne falls in love with him. He doesn't want to fall in love with her, but eventually he does. They end up getting married and having lots of really gorgeous, amazing, beautiful sex. The season ends basically with them settling into what their lives will be together. There's all sorts of subplots involving a character named Lady Whistledown, who is essentially the town gossip. She has a newsletter that she sends out all over the town. No one knows who she is, and it's a bit of a scandal. Queen Charlotte is very upset that she's writing such salacious things, partially about her, but also about other people in the town. And part of the mystery of the series is trying to figure out who Lady Whistledown is. We also meet a number of other side characters that aren't that important, but we'll get to them as well. I think that's a pretty fair synopsis of the first season. Um, yeah, you did pretty pretty well. Thank you very much, Caitlin. So I'm curious to know what your thoughts on this first season are. This is exactly the type of thing that I think traditionally would not be up my alley, mm-hmm. meaning I, placing it in something that looks like Jane Austen to me. And I'm just not really interested. The whole vibe of all this is just like, it's so hard to be a woman in these times. All I can do is marry. <laughs> and I get that Bridgerton is aware of that genre and is trying mm-hmm. to do that in a different way in several regards. But that's why it just gets becomes tired to me. Unless yeah. you have some very hot people in it. Like when Colin Firth was in Pride and Prejudice... I could get into it for that. But it feels so frivolous. And I get, I understand that if you are a woman in this role at this time, something like making out with someone when you're not supposed to make out with someone could not be higher stakes. Because Mm -hmm. if you make out with someone who isn't your husband, they basically throw you in a gutter and spit on you (laughs) and call you wench every time they walk by. And the children point at you and say, wench, wench. (laughs) So it is, it is really high stakes, but it just all feels so dumb. That happens to me every time I walk down Flatbush (laughs) Avenue. So real talk, I get it. I get it. I think for, for me, you know, as an artist myself, and whenever I'm consuming a bit of pop culture or anything like that, or any anything that's coming out, I'm always a little bit like, what does this have to say about our current moment? And whenever I see these period pieces, I'm just kind of annoyed because I'm always just like, why? Why do we need another one? And there's all these ads in the subway. There's one for like Belgravia. I remember when there was, <laughs> there was one, for, I know exactly. There was one for uh, Downton Abbey too. I never watched ago. that. I didn't either. And, you know, a big reason why I didn't watch those shows was because they were just like all about rich white people and the problems that they were facing were so not tangible for me and I had no interest in them. And I understand that for a lot of people, it's a bit of escapist fantasy because their problems seem so trivial and because their problems seem so quaint by by current standards. Now, obviously, the stakes that they're dealing with are high. It's a huge deal for women to find a match because if you don't find a match, exactly like you said, people will call you wench while you walk down the street. So I get that the stakes are high. From a 2021 standard, they're not high. And I'm a little bit like, what What do you have to say right now? I, I just, we should also mention that one of the major aspects of this show, the thing that kind of sets it apart from many other period pieces in this oeuvre 
The only reason why I watched it, to be completely honest, is because it has a multiracial cast. It's not colorblind casting, which would mean that people of color are just kind of in any role. It's color-conscious casting in that Black families have Black people in it, white families have white people in it. They are still following sort of the same standards of what racial identification would be and cultural identification would be. That being said, they don't adhere to the standards or cultural norms that we would typically associate with a British period piece. So the Duke of Hastings, for example, is a black man played by the fucking gorgeous Rajay, Rajay John Page. I'm so sorry if I'm butchering your name, but he plays the Duke of Hastings. He's gorgeous. He has a sort of aunt figure, I think, named Lady Danbury. Mm -hmm. And he also has a father figure who dies before the series begins, but there are flashbacks that deal with him as well. In addition to that, Queen Charlotte is played by a Black woman. And there is a whole world that is set up in which race is a factor, but also not a factor. Okay, so I have a sneaking feeling that you have a robust rant burning in your soul, so I won't (laughs) steal too much of your thunder. I thought in some ways it succeeded in that overall, I think it was well cast, just plainly, with the exception of Daphne, who I think was a little bit too waifish for me. The Duke was gorgeous. The Queen was Perfect. perfect perfect lady danbury was also she had this vibe and i think also because she's older i was like do i know her but i right. don't think i know her she's everyone's auntie yeah right like she has that energy she's so confident she's so fun yeah. but she's also like she'll also get you back in line if you get out oh you yeah fall, you know insofar as the most prominent black actors the actual people were really perfect for their roles i think mm-hmm. hey that was really great casting And I had a real moment with episode four, which is when (laughs) it was revealed that it's not just a world where race is not an issue and there is no racism. Mentioned very quickly, and it felt very awkward from a cultural perspective, but also from a creative perspective. It felt like lazy writing. It felt like there wasn't continuity. Like I was just thinking the Duke's dad clearly was also black because we saw him. Mm-hmm. Presumably mm-hmm. his dad was black and also mm-hmm. a duke, but they're acting like black people only had any standing in the past 50 years or something. It seems like the duke's family has been royalty or nobility for right. a long time. So just in terms right. of like continuity, it, it doesn't make sense. We we learn in episode 4 that segregation was a thing. So the only thing I can think is that perhaps there was like black nobility Mm. and he was a noble in that world and then i guess just sort of got immersed into the white world i mean i don't know what the stakes are of this world there's a reason why i don't watch these period shows they're not interested in talking to me as a black queer person i often find them stuffy i often find them irrelevant i often find them completely out of touch with the issues that we are facing today, and certainly the issues that people of color are facing today. And to be completely honest, I don't know that they've ever really been interested in people of color in their audiences. So for that reason, I've kind of avoided the genre because I never really felt invited into it. Now, this world starts with this multiracial cast. We see this in episode one. It's never really commented on. I remember in the first episode being really pissed off, not because of the multiracial cast in and of itself, but because ultimately... It feels like what the show is celebrating 
is white supremacy. And what I mean by that is there is this multiracial cast, but essentially we've just put all these people of color into roles that would have been played by white people. And there is this sense of white British aristocracy. We keep the same sort of British dances. They Now they turn pop songs into quartets and stuff like that. They do really interesting stuff with the orchestrations and the music in the show. They try to make it seem applicable to a modern audience, which I really appreciated. And I think casting it this way was one of those Mm -hmm. endeavors. In the first episode, I was really irritated because it just felt like we were still aspiring to whiteness. And I just, I wasn't in the mood for it. I don't need this diverse casting if we're still just promoting whiteness as the norm or the standard or the thing we should aspire to. Now, by the time I got to the second episode, my cold heart melted a bit. I was really sold by the acting. I was really sold by the writing. I was really sold by production design. I mean, the the costumes, the hair and makeup, mm-hmm. everything looks fantastic. It's a beautifully designed show. It's a beautifully shot show. And I started really getting immersed into the storytelling. And so all of my qualms were still there, but I kind of let it go because I was I felt like what I was being allowed to have was the experience of just disappearing into this world and just getting to f- see people that look like me be a part of this world without any commentary, without an asterisk next to them, without any justification as to why they were there. They just were a part of the world and there was no comment on it. And by episode three, I started getting really into it and I started getting really excited by that. And then we get to episode four, and there's this scene between the Duke of Hastings and Lady Danbury. So we should say, from a plot point, the Duke is not at all interested in marriage. He's got a whole thing with his father because his father was emotionally abusive toward him his entire life. The Duke had a stutter as a child. He was never seen by his father as worthy of the title or worthy of the lineage or anything like that. He said to his father that he will never give his father an heir because he wants the Hastings line to end with him. Now, Lady Danbury and he get in this argument in the fourth episode because she tells him, you need to embrace love. You need to embrace this courtship ritual that is a part of the society. Because before the king decided to choose a black woman for the queen, which, again, the particulars of that are never really discussed. But the king decided to choose a black woman for his wife. And as such were allowed to become a part of the society. And then what she says is, we were a society divided by color. And then because the king chose one of us, we were allowed into this world. Now, I had a major problem with this. And the reason is, what you've essentially described is segregation turning into integration. You don't get to have this world be a segregated world and then just turn into an integrated world without any discussion of race, without any discussion of racism, prejudice, bigotry, all of the shit that goes along with all that stuff. No, it feels like a white person's fantasy where you get to have this like segregated world and then we just decide that racism's not a thing and segregation's over and then integration just happens and all of these people are in high society we see black suitors we see black debutantes we see black people in this high society and there is no resentment toward them there's no racism toward them and in julia quinn's book essentially she conceived of all these people as white people and the shonda land company thing decided to integrate the world and decided to make it a multi-culti world, which I love. 
The problem is they decided to justify it. They decided to put an asterisk next to each of these Black people's names. And it annoyed me because this whole escapist fantasy that I allowed myself to be to get into, I really let myself get into this world. I really let myself forget that race was a thing. I really let myself dive into, you know, I should correct that. It's not that race was a, wasn't a thing. It's that race wasn't a hindrance. Race wasn't an obstacle for what you wanted in the world. It was just that these people got to be people. Then all of a sudden this element is introduced and then it's never touched on again. And it just felt like, okay, well, who was that for? Because it wasn't for me. Because I was enjoying the escapist fantasy where my being a black person was not a hindrance for the things that I wanted in the world. Where my being a black person didn't mean I had to face racism or microaggressions or bigotry or all the shit that I, Jordan Barbour, as an American in 2020, have to deal with, or 2021, excuse me, have to deal with. What was so lovely about this escapist fantasy, especially in the middle of the shit that we're in right now, is that I could fucking forget my problems and just be a part of this world. And then, I guess because there are people out there, I'm assuming white people, who had a problem with the fact that, hey, why are there just black people in this world and we're not justifying it or explaining it? They had to add this element. And there's so many things to this. What is the deal with this king choosing this black woman? What are the circumstances around that? Was that a scandal? Was that a problem? I'm also sitting here thinking, like, let's look at Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson. Was there rape and coercion and terror involved in this courtship? Since you destroyed this escapist fantasy for me, the least you can do is actually follow through and have the discussion that such a revelation warrants. And you didn't do that. You just decided to put this thing in there and then act like race wasn't an issue again. And it's like, dude, you could have omitted that scene and you would have still had the same series and we would have all been on board. But now all of a sudden you've added this element that's taken me out of this world and then you haven't even justified why you did it. So it feels a little bit like they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. I don't exactly know what that cake is, but I don't want a piece of it. Mm. And I'm annoyed because now I'm back in my 2020, 2021 white people storming the Capitol bullshit life where I have to realize that I can't actually just be a black person in this world without a fucking asterisk next to my name, without some sort of justification as to why I'm there. And as an artist, as an actor, I have had to do so many roles in plays that were written and or directed by white people where your blackness is front and center to who you are. There's no character. There's nothing going on inside beyond your blackness. And as a black person, I can tell you my blackness is a huge part of who I am and why I am the way I am. However, it's not all of me. And the second you introduce this element and then don't give it the attention and the delicate writing that it deserves, you basically give all the people of color in your audience the big middle finger and say, sorry, we had to do this to you, but uh, we're not really going to follow through with anything. So fuck you. I loved getting to see black people in these roles. As a theater actor, as a Shakespearean theater actor, I have often been in these worlds and wondered why black people can't be in the British period dramas. Why couldn't there have been a black person on Downton Abbey or in a real role, essentially? It's really fun watching these black actors get to do this and watching, especially the woman who plays the queen. Her name is... Golda Rochuval, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that name, but she sounds is, like a Jew. She, 
<laughs> she is Go chewing that scenery and I am living for because she's essentially given like one mode to play the whole time. And in a lesser actor's hands, that would have been really boring. But she manages to do so much just with her eyes, just with these little faces. And so she, good. And she, you can tell that she is fucking having a ball. There's a lot of really good work going on on the show. And that's why I don't want to disparage the work. But I do just have to put that out there. I didn't mean to. I was just making a not very funny joke about her name because it was Golda. But that that reminded me. <laughs> that reminded me of a real comment. So there are some parallels between this story and Fiddler on the Roof. Bear with me. I'm with you. Fiddler on the Roof is about many things, but it's basically about this guy marrying off his daughters and what kind of happens when they start to think like, what if I marry for love? And it ends up, you know, it's kind of like a slippery slope and there's a lot of problems that come with it. But unlike this, in Fiddler on the Roof, the sort of like, in-group, out-group of it all is quite front and center. Mm -hmm. Like when the first daughter wants to marry, not the guy that she was supposed to marry, but he's like still a Jew. It's like, nah, we can make it work. (laughs) (laughs) Then when the last daughter basically wants to marry a a Mm non-Jew, it's a huge thing. And then that's like, this is what happens when we let the rules break too much. You know, everything falls apart. I'm not saying it's the same, but it's an example of... (laughs) A different culture, different sort of period piece dealing with a kind of integration, right? Yeah. Let's switch gears just for one second. Speaking of period pieces, we should talk about the sexuality on the show and <laughs> the depictions of sex and women and periods and cum and all the great things that you get to see on this show that you don't normally get to see on a period piece like this. I did have in my notes something along the lines of, finally, a period piece with lots of periods. Um <laughs> I said earlier, there's a lot of things that differentiate this show from similar pieces in this genre. And one of them is really how sexual it is in a way that, you know, I won't presume to know what was going on, but like feels kind of anachronistic. Like, I mean, let's face it, in most cases, you were being married off against your will and sex was kind of like raped by an older man. But we can accept that this is supposed to be the exception to the rule. This was a love marriage. So they're like really fucking. Mm -hmm. And the the sex was hot. I mean, it was it was beautiful without being salacious. It didn't feel super softcore porny. You know, Uh, it it, it felt real it felt the cleverness of it is that like we need to see him come because it's a plot point right like it's not it's not gratuitous to show him blowing his load like off to the side because (laughs) part part, the point is that he doesn't want to get her pregnant right so there's basically like a montage of him like (laughs) pulling out And then it's like a major plot point slash like really a a character development point of her being like, I go on top now. Mm -hmm. And then that's like basically her raping him, like forcing forcing him to come into her. I could read into it different ways, but also on like a superficial level, I think it's just fun. And it's a way kind of like the using the pop songs is a way to make it feel relevant Mm -hmm. and and like something that a modern audience can relate to in some way. Because that's what married life is for me. Is someone... Pulling out. Pulling out. <laughs> all the time. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. 
maybe it's just because I think Roger Jean Page or whatever his name is, is so fucking hot. And I'm a little on the fence about Daphne. It was just hard to sit there and watch that courtship because I'm like, he's so much hotter. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, whatever. Good for her. Good for her, girl. Good for her. So as is our tradition here, you know, in all two episodes that we've had, we like to talk about a pop culture moment in the first part. And then in our second second part, we like to take an element of that pop culture item and extrapolate upon it. Talk about it further. I got into thinking about this idea of like rewriting history, mm-hmm. which is essentially something that Bridgerton is doing, right? With this whole mm-hmm. rewriting of people of color in this world. And I was curious, well, what other pieces of cinema or television are doing that? What is their responsibility to history? And what does it mean to retcon history? And I'm just going to say a few examples just to start the conversation. But I was just looking things up. There are a number of things. You have things as small as in Braveheart, this whole courtship between William Wallace and Princess Isabella of France never happened. Certain things in A Beautiful Mind, The Imitation Game. You have Alan Turing, a noted homosexual, involved in a whole courtship with Keira Knightley's character, which didn't make any sense. And it was it was like a weird rewriting of history. It was a weird retconning of history. Then you have the what I consider to be like the huge offenders, things like Pocahontas, things like Green Book, things like Stonewall, where essentially atrocities committed by white people are rewritten in order to, I should say with regard to Stonewall, atrocities committed by straight people are reformatted to make white people seem less villainous. You have the whole Quentin Tarantino oeuvre, his Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Django Unchained and Glorious Bastards, this whole sense of like going back into history and rewriting an atrocity that happened and giving people a catharsis that didn't actually happen in history. I think the first thing one has to do is... (laughs) is think about how intentional and thoughtful is this change With the example of Tarantino, the change is fundamental to the plot and in my mind is like his premise. He's like, well, what if yeah. we did this? I could critique each of those movies, but it is very thoughtful and I mean, it, it, they are cathartic to watch. And I think that's fine. Also, anybody who's going in there knows that this is what's going on. They know that this is a retelling of history. So that's like one category. Then there's the other category is like either thoughtless or completely accidental, meaning like people who are so entrenched in a straight white point of view that literally their indoctrination leads them to believe that white men were saviors in circumstances that they absolutely were not, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that would that's what I would call the like truly accidental and that's a kind way of putting it, but they they they're not even like really fully thinking. And then the middle ground is just not very thoughtful, which I think is mm-hmm. what we had with Bridgerton, right? Mm-hmm. There was an opportunity if you said, "Yeah, this book is great. We're going to have multicultural cast because or, and this is why, or with the goal of achieve, achieving X, mm-hmm. that would have been something else than what this was, which it felt like because it's 2020, we should put in some people of color <laughs> and there's going to be questions. So yeah. uh, put a rewrite in episode four. Yeah. 
I think in any of those categories, one can have critiques, Mm -hmm. but I think having intention about it and being thoughtful Mm -hmm. is step one for doing it right. So, so uh, the example of Pocahontas children's movies is a, is a whole other thing because it's like, how do you teach children about the horrors done to the indigenous peoples of this country and still give them some glimmer of hope or give them some sense of joy and fun and all that stuff. Now, if you want to do that story, why don't you just do that, but call her something else or something like that? You know what I mean? If you want to tell Mm. this fabricated version, if you want to do the imitation game and give an homage to Alan Turing and all the great that he did in order to stop the Germans during World War II, why then do you feel the need to rewrite his sexuality? And if you are going to rewrite his sexuality, then just change his fucking name. And you can say this character is based on Alan Turing, but we did this completely imagined version of it. But to be fair, if you were a closeted gay guy during that era, you would pick Kira Knightley as the, like, <laughs> I think this is supposed to be hot, but she's still kind of boyish in her figure. <laughs> I, totally I like fair. this. Totally fair. So totally maybe fair. they didn't get it a little bit more right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe that was part of the original script or whatever. And, and they, over rewrites and screen testing and all that shit, focus grouping and all that shit, they decided to get rid of it. But so it's one thing when you have the Tarantino over it, which I do have issues with. And you said, you know, to a certain extent, people going in to watch these things know the history and know that this is a sort of fantastic reimagining of it. I don't know that that's true. I don't Mm. know that people know going into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that Sharon Tate didn't die Mm. or or that Sharon Tate did die. But that's a little I would say that's a little bit different than Django and Inglourious Bastards, because those two are about a whole eras of history. Like we know generally what was going on with the Nazis. We know generally what was going on with enslaved people. So Mm -hmm. you figure this wasn't exactly right. Right. And the catharsis, what Tarantino is known for, one of the things he's known for is like very graphic violence. And I'll personally say, I fucking love that scene in Django Unchained when he fucking goes nuts and kills all those slave owners and white people. I was living for it. I was living for it. And I'm not saying I advocate death. I'm not saying I advocate murder. Obviously, nothing like that. But as a form of historical fiction, you know, that's why we do have this genre of historical fiction as a form of sort of fantastical storytelling where it's like we get to imagine because we have this generational trauma and we have these lived experience that that have no catharsis because we still live with shit as black people in the world. This, you know, Tarantino doing that does offer us this moment of like, ah, oh, this feels so fucking good. Mm-hmm. In Inglorious Bastards, when they fucking shoot up Hitler, that feels so fucking, it feels mm. good to like watch Hitler get fucked over because we know the horrors that he committed. We know the atrocities that he committed. And there is such a release, even though once you leave that theater, you're aware that it was just a fantasy. There is something about the escapist nature of that fantasy, and that feels good to get to have. But I do think it's irresponsible when, I mean, it's, it's so tricky because you have certain things like the social network. They turned that whole uh, relationship that he had with Rooney Mara's character 
into a much bigger thing than it actually was in real life. In truth, mm-hmm. I think he, Mark Zuckerberg's actually been with the same woman he was with since yeah. he was in college or maybe even earlier than that. And so the reason why Aaron Sorkin did that is because he wanted to add, uh, he wanted to add a dramatic element to the movie. And I get why one would do that. I don't know if that's a disservice to history. I don't know if that's. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that there's a difference between dramatization and a true retcon, Mm -hmm. meaning like a retcon should go back and meaningfully change things in a way that makes you like see the history in a new way. Right. And I mean, maybe for some people it matters whether Mark Zuckerberg had a girlfriend or not, but for me, it doesn't really, it doesn't really change much. (laughs) You know, it would, it would be different if it was like, uh, really he got the idea whispered to him from a gnome that lived under his bed. And then Mm -hmm. it'd be like, that's different. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't think the line between dramatization and retcon is totally clear. Because in both cases, it's like, are you just taking liberties to make it more interesting or are you really changing it to make it mean something new? There's also the thing of why are you choosing to tell the story this way? What are you gaining from doing this? So let's look at Green Book, for example. You have Don Shirley played by Mahershala Ali in a Oscar winning role. You have Viggo Mortensen as his driver in kind of a reversal of the driving dis- driving Miss Daisy trope, where you have this white guy driving this black man around. However, we're still following the white guy. The white guy is still our way into this world. And it's rewritten in such a way to make it seem like they had a friendship, which by all accounts, they did not. And so as a white person... His family was mad, right? Totally mad, Yes. As a white person watching this, which is why so many white people liked it, it's a lovely way of getting to look at race. It's a lovely way of getting to say, ah, racism was done in the 60s. And it's another thing that perpetuates this idea that racism is only someone saying the N-word. And this idea that, like, well, that was a thing that ended with the civil rights movement. And the reason why we're having all the shit that we're having in the world today is because we're not doing the work as a society. We keep telling stories like the one in Green Book, where it's this sort of retconning in history in order to make us feel better about that history. But you're actually doing a disservice to the black people that are watching it because you're not telling that history accurately. You're not telling that history fairly. And you're discounting our struggle. You're essentially telling us that we are not a part of this story because your target audience is white people. And it's to make white people feel better about the awful history that they refuse to own and that they refuse to take ownership over and the flip side of that is you have something like Forrest Gump right which is this sort of fantastical way of retconning history because mm-hmm. Forrest Gump did not do all of those things huh and I do <laughs> but I don't know that I think the history that they're presenting in Forrest Gump does a disservice to the actual people that lived it because A, it's presented as a fiction film that has elements of history in it. You can laugh at Tom Hanks showing JFK his butt because we know that didn't really happen. But it's funny. When you have this fucking white cab driver teaching Don Shirley how to eat fucking fried chicken, and that's a plot point of your shit, I'm sitting there being like, this is fucking racist. This is gross. It's annoying. And all you've done is you've presented this role reversal where you've given Don Shirley, you've made him the Jessica Tandy character in Driving Miss Daisy, and you've made Viggo Mortensen the Morgan Freeman character. Except you've made that guy a a vitriolic racist. And 
his his whole arc is just learning to not be racist. And Don Shirley's arc is I don't really know what Don Shirley's arc is. So I don't know what the catharsis that's yeah. gained from retconning that history. Yeah. Well, I think I think an interesting point that you're bringing up to to circle back like I was saying, you know, the, what's what's the line between like dramatization and retcon? And I think within white Hollywood, mm-hmm. what feels like a dramatization mm-hmm. actually is a retcon. Do you know what I'm saying? By not acknowledging mm, yes. by by centering whiteness or like not showing the fullness of the uh black character's experience, you're cha- you're literally changing the history. His family saying you're changing the history. That's not yeah. what it's like. This man's life yeah. was not to help the emotional arc of this ma- white man. <laughs> right. That wasn't right. his major achievement in his right. life. And there's also sort of like retconning by omission. You know, you look at something yeah. like Mad Men as opposed to like the depiction of family life that we got in the fifties and sixties, a la leave it to beaver, the, the Patty Duke show, that whole era of like wholesome family values. The whole thing about Mad Men is that it's like shining a light on things we would not have normally seen. It's giving Elizabeth Moss's character an arc that a woman would never have gotten in that era. And so that's sort of the retconning that's happening. But then there are scenes where like, They'll be in an elevator and there's a black elevator operator. And I'm sitting there being like, tell his story. Because Mm -hmm. back then in the 50s and 60s, we didn't tell that story. So if we are going to revisit this shit and actually start to tell these stories, let's tell the stories that weren't getting told. Let's actively engage with the history that we have chosen to ignore in order to shine a light on the problems that we are currently facing. And the way you do that as storytellers is to humanize those people. But in Mad Men, all they did is just push them to the periphery, just like we're still doing, just like shows are still having an issue with. You know, we've got another retconning with the series Hollywood. I haven't seen it. I know you haven't seen it. And so that's why this is not meant to be a criticism of the series at all. However, they're retconning old Hollywood in such a way to suggest that black people, I think Asian people, again, I didn't see it, queer people are in this world. And I think that there is some hesitancy with the queer characters, but I know with like the, there's like a black character who gets an Oscar nomination and it's like not a thing. She's a, Mm. and what you do when you retcon that history is that you're you're showing us this idealized version of what that time would have been, but it's an idealized version of what that time would have been for you. And it's what you think that history would have, it's what you think we would have liked about that history, but you're still not consulting us. You're still not talking. Right. And actually for me, I don't need you to show me a black woman getting an Oscar nomination in 1955. What I need is a black woman getting an Oscar nomination in fucking 2020. Yeah. Because within the last decade, we've had, Several years where it was Oscar so white, where it was like no black people were nominated for Oscars. So why do we feel the need to retcon history that way? Let's actively change our present moment. With that example and also with Bridgerton, I feel like we're at this funny place where we've at least I mean, I'm being overly like optimistic here, but I think studios are satisfied that there is a demand Mm-hmm. and an audience for mm-hmm. not completely white shows mm-hmm. and also for them just in terms of appearances 
it's good for them right now, right? Mm -hmm. So they've kind of committed, we're going to do this. But the problem is you still largely have the same people in charge. So they're not doing it right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They're not not usually doing it right. And it's like, unfortunately, obviously, Shonda is one of the biggest, most powerful women of, I mean, woman of color. She's the one. She's the one. But I have to believe that, that episode for Mishap was not her. I really hope it wasn't. I mean, Chris girl Van, needs to sleep. Chris she took Van a nap Dusen. and she woke up and it was in there. <laughs> Chris Van Dusen, who is a cisgendered white man, I don't know if he's gay or not, is the showrunner for Bridgerton. So it does still have white people at the center of the creative world for it, which, which I, I think the same is true for How to Get Away with Murder. I think the same is yeah. true for a couple of other Shonda projects. You know, she's not always at the helm and even if she wasn't responsible for that decision it is still under her company and it's being sold as a shonda show so i do think that there is some responsibility there but again i'm not blaming shonda with all that shonda's done for black people and she can do whatever the fuck she wants the last thing i want to say with regard to this subject is i don't know if you have any thoughts on superhero movies but a common trope of superhero movies actually is to retcon history. Shows like Watchmen, and you have things like Captain America, X-Men First Class. There is this... So Watchmen is different because Watchmen is sort of establishing an alternate America where certain Black people, not all Black people, but did you watch the series Watchmen? I mean, I watched it a, weird, a year late, but I watched it's it. It's brilliant. It's so fucking good. You know, they're presenting this alternate history where we see what reparations would have looked like for black people, what a different type of America that still is dealing with the same issues, but just sort of it's it's sort of around Vietnam that our paths diverge, like the the real America. And then this fantastical America that's in Watchmen. One of the suppositions of the show is that we won the Vietnam war. And so Vietnam becomes the 51st state, which I think is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And, It plays with all of that, but it doesn't do it in a way that disservices history. It just presents kind of an alternate history. But it doesn't say this is what it was or this is what it should have been. It's just here's a different idea to consider. The series is based on a graphic novel, which very much establishes that. It's not the series that really did it. The series kind of took on the race stuff. The graphic novel is the real divergent or divergent narrative that takes away from what the actual American history is. So I'm not a huge comic book universe person Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. I've always gravitated towards the Batman films, but then not really anything else. Okay. So generally speaking, you say superhero movie, Watchmen's not going to appeal to me, but obviously I heard it was so good. It was so good. It was phenomenal, partly because it didn't, well, it did and it didn't feel like a superhero movie. Yeah. And talk about, you know, I I started this by saying it depends how thoughtful, how intentional you are with your dealing with history. And this was, it couldn't have been more intentional. And mm-hmm. I think the the brilliance of it is that in one respect, we're completely departing from anything that happened in our history. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, by incorporating Tulsa, you're sharing this history yes. that so many, especially white people, didn't have any awareness of yeah. intelligently, you know, 
now we're very close to the centennial. And so I thought you're in this completely fantastical world. You're actually doing a service that history books should have been doing in our classroom. So it's, it's, it's funny like that. And my whole thing with like, other super, you know, there's Captain America and there's X-Men First Class, which, you know, go back to Captain America goes back to World War II. X-Men First Class goes back to the Bay of Pigs. And it's a way of looking back at history. But the my issue with like superhero movies is that because superheroes are have such a clear delineation between good and evil, mm-hmm. when you send these characters back in time, you're placing a modern judgment on the good mm. and evil of back then. Which I think mm. is, I get it. I I get why we would want to do that. It's a way of us kind of in a modern sense, looking back at those periods and saying, this is what we think was good and this is what we think is bad, which right. I get. But unfortunately, the people that stormed the Capitol watch those movies just like I do. And <laughs> the way they see good versus bad is different from the way I see good versus bad. And the problem is when you you represent history as an either or, when you represent history as this sort of like mm. dichotomy, you take away nuance and you take away conversation. And I think ultimately that's one of the things, that's one of the problems that's with our country right now. And I don't think it's coincidental that superhero movies are as popular as they are. I think these two things are are directly linked because there is this clear narrative happening nowadays about what is good and what is evil. But the problem is there's no such thing as good and evil. You can only designate something as good and evil because of history, because of the lens of history. So Mm -hmm. if the Nazis fucking won World War II, we would probably look back at the Nazis differently. And Captain America Mm -hmm. might go back and be on the Mm -hmm. side of the Nazis. So it's a little dangerous to me to do that, especially to do it flippantly and to do it irresponsibly because everyone's seeing it with a different lens and the people that were storming the Capitol thought they were doing a righteous thing. They, those are, those people think Captain America is on their side and you know, for all intents and purposes, I don't know that he's not, we don't have the benefit of 40 years from now being able to look at this moment and as a society determine whether or not the rioters were on the side of good or on the side of evil. I I think the general majority of Americans think that they were not. But also, I think what this has been showing, and there's been a lot of like memes to this effect in the, in recent days is that the many on the right created a hero out of Trump Mm -hmm. in a way that in a very healthy way, we, we on the left, for the most part, are not doing with Biden. We're not getting hats with Biden on it. We're not, you know, putting Biden stickers on our trucks or whatever. We're just like people are. We we are, but it's not it's not on the whole, he's not our God. It's not called he's the guy he's the guy that's leading our team. Yes. But we don't if 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 he's gone when when Kamala takes over. Right. (laughs) No one's gonna be is we're not Dropping from the ceiling onto the stage going, I need a hero! <laughs> right. And I also think the major difference is that we're will if Biden fucks up or lies or does bad shit, we're willing to say, yeah, he should go. We don't mm-hmm. deify him and then see everything that he does as being right. infallible. We hold him to a certain standard. He has so far lived up to that standard. But the second he breaks that standard, we will turn on him and we will say, you do not represent our interests. And that's what's weird about the whole deification of Donald Trump, because the dude's a fucking liar and he's a known liar. And these people just believe him and they, 
you know, and Mike Pence was on their side until fucking January 6th. And then all of a sudden they just turned on him. So it's, I don't really know how we got onto that, but anything else you want to say on the subject? I I think we solved it. You know, I I think think, we solved it. I think we fixed it. So I don't think we'll ever have to talk about this shit again. I don't think anyone else needs to talk about this shit again because we solved it. You're welcome. You're welcome, America. All right. So let's move on to our next segment called Conspiracy. In this segment, much like QAnon, we look at what's going on in the world and we offer our own conspiracies to explain them. Caitlin, what's your conspiracy this week? This actually relates somewhat. We were just talking politics. Uh relates somewhat to that. Yesterday was the inauguration. Something about the inauguration, it's kind of like become sort of like a Met Gala-esque event where, you know, you're checking out who wore what, how are they looking. There were some stunners, Michelle but Br- Michelle, oh my God, my God, I mean, Michelle, <laughs> my God, it was absurd. She looks like the queen that she was mm-hmm. and everyone was gagging. Everybody was gagging. Like, you were gagging. The young queens were gagging. My mom was gagging. It was it was across the spectrum. But the Luke that got by far the most attention was from a, a one Bernie Sanders. <laughs> now, I'm sure that I will get sick of the memes at some point, but I'm not there yet. No, I love them so much. Good. Well, I'm going to keep sending you them. Please. So... Bernie, I don't know if you somehow missed it. Amidst this pageantry, this gay ball, uh, everyone's, you know, sequence dresses to the nines. <laughs> Bernie Sanders is serving you. It's snowing like heck outside, but I got to go to the pharmacy to get my pills, and I might as well pick up some hard candies while I'm there. Realness. Big old coat. Please Mittens. let that be RuPaul's next runway. Please <laughs> let that be the category for the next runway. Category. <laughs> so I mean, it, it was hilarious. It was perfect. It was. I saw. I saw this uh, tweet that was like, "I want to be a Michelle, but deep down, I know I'm a Bernie." And that was exactly <laughs> that was me. Yeah. Because I would be the one being like, "What? It's cold." Yeah. Part of this Luke was that he also had this mysterious Manila envelope. With him, mm-hmm. therein lies my conspiracy. <laughs> there's lots of talks about was it just an accessory to complete the look? Possibly mm-hmm. was he on his way to the post office? Various theories. Mm-hmm. I'm certain that that envelope was filled with glitter. <laughs> Why would he fill that envelope with glitter for mm, the festivities? Of course not. Bernie does not represent Joe Biden's wing of the party. Of course, they're acting like they're friends. He's going to walk up to him and say, hey, pal, here's this envelope. And then Joe Biden's going to take it back to his office. Like, oh, what did my friend Bernie give me? Open it up. Glitter all over the Oval Office. (laughs) Joe Biden's going to spend the next four years cleaning up glitter. (laughs) Meanwhile, Bernie and AOC slip in their far left radical socialist agenda. Yes. Yes. And that. Is my conspiracy. That's a good conspiracy, girl. I got two very quick conspiracies. My first one is that Michelle Obama is actually Sister Knight, 
which is oh. Regina King's character from Watchmen. Yes! Now, I don't know if that means she plays the character on the show. I don't know if that just means that she is Sister Knight in real life. But when she came out in that fucking purple with the little gold thing in the center, I was like, I mean, that is a superhero outfit. You are Sister Knight. And then she had the mask on. Right. It, she looked just like Sister Knight. So I, I was convinced that she is Regina King in Watchmen. That's conspiracy one. My second conspiracy... Now that Donald Trump has his reign of terror is over, the only way that I can justify to myself that such a horrible human being existed and went through that. Do you know who Marina Abramovich is? The artist? Yeah, the performance artist, Mm -hmm. Marina Abramovich. Yeah. She essentially puts herself in real life situations in order to draw out some truth about the world and to, to, you know, shine a mirror on whatever society is. In my lifetime, certainly. I have never seen America as horrible as it was in these last four years. And I have to tell myself, and I truly believe deep down, Donald Trump is the greatest performance artist of all time. (laughs) Of all time. Oh my God. Because he started a reality show and (sighs) rode that wave to the presidency of the United fucking states. And I have to believe that because we were able to see all the horrible people come out of the woodworks, we were able to see racism on the surface in a way that we just have not seen in this country for a while. That's not to suggest that racism hasn't been here. It certainly fucking has. And anyone who says post-racial can eat a dick and die. But he managed to show us just how much racism, bigotry, xenophobia, general hatred there is, and completely unfounded hatred there is. And I don't know that that would have come to the surface in such a visceral way with just another run-of-the-mill Republican candidate. So I have to think that much like Marina Abramovich, Donald Trump is the dopest performance artist the world has ever seen. That's the only way that I can sleep at night thinking back to the last four years. It's the only way that I can get through the horror of what that was. And when I think back to it. So that's mine. And the installation is closed. (laughs) It is. Officially. It is. That is my conspiracy and I'm sticking to it. Well, speaking of installations closing, that brings us to the end of yet another episode. All two in the bag. Caitlin, is there anything else that you want to say before we go, my love? Oh, yeah. I wanted to let you know that I'm obsessed with you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love you. Uh, I have for years. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've been told that. Um, I, I've, I've seen a tweet or two. Yeah, yeah. So that's where I'm at. And so I appreciate your, your presence and your mind. It's funny that you say that because I fucking love you. And oh. I am so excited that we do this every week. With that, we're going to end the show. Thank you for joining us on what has been another amazing week of Queer and On. We'll see you next week. 